brother, finding your Bibles as you take your seats. Revelation 2, verse 12 to 17. We come to the third of seven letters of our Savior to his seven churches. Revelation 2 and verse 12. And as I read through the verses, just keep in mind the typical division of the letters. There's an introduction wherein our Savior describes himself usually with imagery borrowed from the first chapter that has a unique relevance to this particular church. And then he praises them, and then he often rebukes them or corrects them, and then he ends with a motivation to entice them to duty. So notice Revelation 2 and 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, Right. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have been there, because you have there, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we want to kind of divide it up into just four parts. We have a commendation, a correction, an exhortation, and a motivation. Pergamos, which literally means height or elevation, was the capital city of Asia Minor, which of course was under the control and dominion of Rome. And I think this is probably what our Savior means in verse 13, where he speaks about this church dwelling in the throne room of Satan. Sam Storm says, Pergamos was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia and retained this honor well into the second century. But it wasn't primarily for either political or economic achievements that Pergamos was famous, but for religion. Pergamos was the center of worship for at least four of the most important pagan cults of the day. And these four pagan cults, or all of the pagan cults, obviously all ended in Caesar. You were allowed to worship the pagan deities as long as you gave supreme allegiance to Caesar. Verse 13 I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That is Pergamos, the center of Roman rule, and thus satanic dominion. Our Savior describes himself as he who has the sharp 
two-edged sword. And that, of course, refers to his word, whereby or through which he judges both to defend and defeat. And we'll come back to that description here in a moment. So notice, first of all, his commendation. Regardless where they live, they, quote, hold fast to his name and did not deny his faith. Notice, first of all, they held fast to his name. The Greek word translated hold fast literally means to grab with might or cling with strength. It here refers to a strong commitment to the person of Christ, to cling to him without wavering by faith, to hold fast to Christ with the hands of the heart or by faith. And they did not, secondly, deny his faith. That is, they did not deny his gospel. By faith is meant the sum total of the Christian faith or the Christian religion. It's this faith that Jude says has been committed to us to defend. The foundational truths of the Christian gospel. I think this is what we find here. And so Jesus is commending them because they held fast to him and his word. They held fast to him and the word which tells us about him. They held fast to the essential truths of the gospel. They did not waver either with regards to their commitment to Christ or his word, the person and work of Jesus. And yet, unfortunately, we find in verse 14 that there's a correction. And the fundamental problem with the church at Pergamos is that she compromised with false teaching which led to immoral living. And the compromise concerns two groups of false teachers. First, there's the doctrine of Balaam, verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those you see there were some in the church who were teaching and believing these bad doctrines even though the church as a whole was faithful you have them there who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying that Balaam himself was resurrected and a member of the church in Pergamos. Remember, he was an Old Testament false prophet. But he's saying the doctrines that you're teaching reflect that. They're similar to what Balaam taught in the Old Testament. And we won't go back there to examine that passage. But if you did, you would know that fundamentally he taught lies to encourage sexual uh, immorality. And that's why Jesus says here that you have in the church at Pergamos those who are teaching a similar doctrine to Balaam, which has a similar result of Balaam's doctrine. And then secondly, we find in verse 15, also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And who the Nicolaitans are, we don't know. I've already said that back in verse 6 when we were looking at the first letter to the church at Ephesus. The difference, of course, there being the church of Ephesus 
is praised that they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, whereas this church was allowing the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Some have suggested, and it's possible, that the Nicolaitans were no other than the false prophets he called Balaam. It's possible. Or else there was two distinct groups of false teachers, but the bottom line is their false teaching was similar in that it led to immoral practices. And, unfortunately, this otherwise faithful church allowed it. And so Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You're allowing this false teaching in the church that's tempting some and encouraging others to sexual immorality. In other words, there was bad doctrine that was leading to bad practice. Now, we do know that the pagan worship in the first century promoted sexual immorality. And so it's likely that these false teachers were allowing or encouraging members in this church to participate in the false worship of the pagan deities that encouraged sexual immorality. For example... Just back up for a second to Acts 15, where we find that uh, apostolic letter written in the church of Jerusalem, Acts 15 and verse 28 to 29. This is just the tail end of that apostolic letter. Remember, they were, all, they were false teachers in some of the churches, and they were trying to encourage these Christians that they had to, in order to be truly Christian, they had to do certain things of the Mosaic system. And so they wrote to say, basically, this is what you need to do. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, that is, stay away from the pagan worship. Remember, they were allowed to buy, if their conscience permitted them, the meat that was offered in those sacrifices in those pagan temples, but they were to stay away from the pagan temples. That's what I think he's meaning here. And to stay away from the meat offered in the pagan temp temples if it bloodies your conscience. And then notice, secondly, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. So you see how the two are connected. And seemingly, these false prophets in this church were either allowing or encouraging participation in these pagan feasts which promoted sexual immorality. All right? That brings us then thirdly to the exhortation in verse 16. And the exhortation is rather simple. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Now, before I go any further, let me just say what's, I think, obvious, and that is Jesus' counsel with regards to correcting the faulty behavior of his people in these seven letters is rather basic, isn't it? What does he tell all the churches to do? Repent. Brethren, I think that says a lot to us who live in an era where we want to create all of these 
elaborate things that we're to do to curb or correct our behavior. Jesus was rather straightforward. Perhaps I can go so far to say he had a repetitious remedy for man's problem. The first church had grown cold and, have, and had walked away from their first love. What were they to do? Repent. This one was allowing false teachers in their congregation. What were they to do? Repent. And you can find it in the next letters. Irrespective of the problem, our Savior had a once-for-all solution. I can even go so far to say a what? A one-size-fits-all solution. And here it is. Repent. That is, come to see your wickedness. Come to see your sins. Feel it in your heart. Turn from it with your will and do the opposite. This is what Jesus says. Repent. And then he gives them this incentive with reference to this correction. Or else, I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, if the church did not repent from allowing false teaching to continue in the church, Jesus would fight against them. If they were unwilling to repent from their sins, that is, allowing the false teachers within the congregation to have any place of prominence or position of, uh, of authority, if the church would not remove them from the church, Jesus says he would come and fight against the church. Now notice how he puts it. I will come to you quickly, that is the church in Pergamos, and he's going to fight against the false teachers. And so what Jesus does is he makes a distinction. The church would suffer from this, but he would deal most harshly with the false teachers. Or else I will come to you quickly. Now, brethren, that doesn't mean, it doesn't, that doesn't refer to his second coming. It refers to a present spiritual coming that he would do within this church to remove the false teachers from them. Now, exactly how he would do that, I don't know. He would do it, as he says, with the sword of his mouth. That is, in and through his word. Somehow, someway, he would come by his spirit and he himself would remove these false teachers from the church. But in removing the false teachers from the church, he would also address their lack of repentance. And so our Savior says that this judgment, though it would be directly focused on the false prophets or false teachers, it would also affect the church. I will come to you and fight against them. And then he gives them this motivation, fourthly. And the motivation basically is twofold. Those who overcome, verse 14, will receive two things. Some hidden manna, and a white stone. And uh, that's verse 17, sorry. And let's go through them very quickly. Some hidden manna. 
Now, manna, of course, refers back to the Old Testament and the daily manna or bread provided in the wilderness. It's here described as hidden manna, probably for two reasons. One, if you remember, in the Old Testament, God had Moses put some of that manna in a pot, and he hid that pot in the Ark of the Covenant. And I think that just simply... Well, for one, it was a reminder for the people of God's provision for them in the wilderness. But, of course, that bread was a picture of Christ. And I think that just simply underscored the fact that this bread came down from heaven and it shadowed God's provision ere long in the gospel in Christ, the bread of life. But I think also it's hidden manna because it's hidden from the world. It's hidden from those who are blinded. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that the gospel is hidden by the God of this age, the God of this world. The gospel is hidden. Those who are in their sins are natively blind to this manna. They're blind to their need for it, and they're blind to God's provision of it. And so Jesus says, To those who overcome, I will give them some of the hidden manna. I think it just means, ultimately speaking, they will have him in the fullest sense of that concept. Because remember, Jesus is speaking about those who overcome. He's not promising them present manna, though that's true. He's promising them future manna when and if they overcome. And that, of course, takes place when they die and their souls are perfected. They would have some of the hidden manna. And they, of course, would have that in the fullest sense at Jesus' second coming. But they would get not only hidden manna, Jesus says, but a white stone. And let me just say, first of all, with regards to the identity of this white stone, there's really no way of knowing exactly what Jesus means. But we do know that white, especially the book of Revelation and in the Bible, denotes purity or righteousness. And the stone probably underscores longevity. Unchanging purity probably is what Jesus here is speaking about. Those who endure to the end will be perfected. They will be perfected in two stages. They will be perfected first in spirit when they die and then in body when Jesus comes back. And this purification will be eternal. It's not a white pebble, but a white stone. Something that's going to last. But what's interesting is there's something written on the white stone that I think helps us identify what it is. Written on the stone is a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. Now let me suggest by new name is meant our new identity. Name equals identity. So when we become a Christian, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation 
Behold, all things have become new. We receive a new identity in Christ. We receive a new name, brethren, when we become Christians. His name is put upon us. We become Christians. But that identity and name is necessarily connected to character. To bear his name is to bear his image. When we become Christians and God's name is written upon us or put upon us, it's the same thing according to 1 John 3, 1 and following, to bearing God's character, his image. It's like my children bear my name, they bear my image. And so too, when we become Christians, we bear God's name or his image. And so I think what this is talking about is that future glorification of soul and then body wherein God's image is perfectly put upon us in heaven. In fact, this is actually foretold in Isaiah 62.2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kinds of your glory. Now keep that in mind, righteousness. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. And so that begins, I think this prophecy has its application in our salvation. When God's name is put upon us, when we're put into Christ and all things become new, and then it ultimately has its fulfillment when we're perfected in body, in spirit, and in body. And doesn't the book of Revelation speak of us as the new Jerusalem. We have a new name. We're a new city, a new people. We have a new identity, a new nature, and a new destiny. Now it says that this name, nobody knows except him who receives it. And I think this is just going back to the hidden manna concept. Nobody really knows what all of this entails except for the one who receives it. I think it's speaking about the individual, personalized intimacy that exists between God and a saved sinner. And if you go back to that passage I referenced to, by the way, in 1 John, it says that people at present don't know who we are. They don't know this name. Nobody's able to know this name except those who receive it, those who get converted. Now there's um, at least one passage in Revelation that sheds light, I think, on this. And that's in chapter 14. And notice verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. You know, one way to interpret the book of Revelation is to keep reading the book of Revelation. I know that might sound very simple, but trust me, 99% of the people don't get it. It's just like one way to understand the Old Testament is to keep reading into the New Testament. Because when Jesus, uh, or when uh, John here speaks about 144,000, he's talking about the sum total of the elect 
right? That's a figurative term to speak about the elect. There's 12 taken from all the 12 tribes, and you do the math, it's going to come out to 144,000. It's not a literal 144,000, it's the elect. And they all have the name of God written on them. It's the same name that Jesus speaks about back in our text. And then notice, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now watch verse 3. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn that song. Nobody knows the name. Nobody can learn that song except who? The 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. In other words, this is a religion that results in our salvation and our adoration of the one who saves us that nobody knows but us, the 144,000. Brother, nobody can sing with love in their heart and gratitude to God for salvation except one who's been saved. We can all learn songs and sing them, but nobody can sing this new song. What is the new song? It's the new song. It's the song of the gospel believed and experienced in our hearts. It's the new covenant realized in our souls. And everybody who goes to heaven, let me back up, everybody who's saved on earth and thus will go to heaven knows this song. Brother, we know this song now. When we sang that song to start off with, we were singing with joy and adoration in our hearts to God. Because he's put his name upon us. Verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for their virgins. In other words, they have a white stone, brethren. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits of God unto the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That's just talking about Christians. Who, when they go to heaven, well, even while they've been on earth, receive that hidden manna, and they receive it in a special sense when they die and go to be with the Lord, and they have this new name and a white stone even now, and then they get it in some fuller sense when they die and go to heaven. They sing this new song now on earth in the midst of all of the drama of this wicked world, Satan's throne room. And yet when we enter into that throne room of heaven, we'll sing it and know it in perfection. So I think we find in these verses some indication as to what our Savior is saying in our text. All right? So let me summarize it with these observations. First of all, the church presently dwells within enemy territory. Scripture describes Satan as the God of this world. That's in 2 Corinthians 4, isn't it? Satan is the God of this world. Brethren, there's a sense in which the city to which Jesus now is writing was uniquely wicked. 
But there's another sense in which we can say this whole world is Satan's throne room. And Christians dwell within it. Now here I want to answer the question why. Why does Christ save us, give us a new name, give us a white stone upon which there's written a new name, put a new song in our hearts, forgives us, accepts us, justifies us, sanctifies us, indwells us by his spirit, only to leave us behind enemy lines? Why does Jesus leave us in Satan's world? Well, a few things. One, before I come to suggest some reasons, let me just clarify. We know that the Bible does call this world Satan's, but we also know that ultimately it's God's world, isn't it? While he allows Satan to rule in it, just like he allowed Rome to rule in it in the first century, ultimately God sits as sovereign over it. Furthermore, he knows us while we're in it. Let's go back to um, chapter 2, verse 13. I know your works, and I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Brother and Jesus knew full well where they were. He had them there for a reason. Reasons I want to suggest in a moment. Now this, of course, would have been exceedingly encouraging to these Christians in Pergamos. Jesus hasn't forgotten about them. He didn't misplace them. He knew exactly where they were, and they were exactly where he wanted them, in Satan's world, where Satan's throne dwells, this world. And it would have been an encouragement to them on various levels. Individually, it would have been an encouragement. Jesus knows where I dwell. He knows I go to work in a very wicked environment, as it were, in Satan's throne room. Some of you work in Satan's throne room. And you have to go there and you see the wickedness and you hear the vile wickedness and you're surrounded by it for eight to ten hours, six days a week. Or else he knows the neighborhood you live in, where you see it and you smell it sometimes. Depends on who lives next to you. And it would have been an encouragement to these Christians to know that Jesus is well aware. He knows where we dwell. But brethren, he's also, this would have been an encouragement not only individually, but corporately or ecclesiastically. He knows where our church is at. He knows about those little churches in China being persecuted and hated. He knows about those churches off in those strongholds of false religion and, and Catholicism and, and, and wickedness in Europe, how so secular it is, and those churches are so despised and so maligned and so hated. We can say to our brethren in Europe and our brethren in China, Jesus knows where you dwell. He knows you dwell where Satan dwells. That's how he puts it at the end of verse 13, doesn't he? 
you dwell there where Satan dwells. And it would have been an encouragement both to them individually and corporately. So we have to answer the question, why? Why does Jesus leave us in this world where Satan dwells? First, to be a witness for Christ. That is, Christians bear witness to the worth of Christ over all false gods. There's no doubt, probably, well, it's very likely, let me put it this way, that Antipas, in verse 13, Jesus calls him my faithful martyr, was put to death because he would not bow to Rome. You know, the uh, Roman citizens, which included the Christians, had to confess Caesar's Lord. And very likely Antipas refused to do it. And he was put to death as a result. The term martyr is the term for witness. My faithful witness. In other words, Antipas bore witness to my worth. He said, I would rather die than to deny my Lord. In other words, Christ is worth. He's worth serving even if it means I have to die in the process. Christ leaves his people in the world to bear witness to the fact that he's worth serving even to death. And in comparison to the gods of this age and the gods of this world, there's no comparison. So to be a witness for Christ. Secondly, to be a testimony to Christ. And, that, and by this I mean Christians are a testimony to Christ's power in saving them and keeping them even in the very throne room of Satan. Brother, stop and think about it. Here was this little church in this city overrun with paganism. The Roman capital. And this little band of believers refused to bow the knee to Jesus. It says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In other words, I've left you there for a reason, okay? And here it is in part. Because you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith. You stand firm, you hold fast to me and my word, even in the midst of Satan's throne room. And that's a testimony to what, brethren? It's not a testimony to the Christians in the church at Pergamos. It's a testimony to the God of those Christians in Pergamos. It was a testimony to his power. Brethren, what keeps you? What keeps you? Believing in Jesus. Clinging to Jesus. And not denying his word in that filthy workplace. When you go in there and you see it and you hear it. What keeps you from being like them in that place? Well, ultimately, it's God's power. It's His grace. What keeps you from being unlike your neighbors? What keeps you from being unlike this world? What keeps us safe in this world, brethren, but the power and the grace and the mercy of Christ? 
So he saves us and he keeps us in this world, not only that we would bear witness to his worth, but we would be testimonies of his grace. And then thirdly, to be an instrument of Christ. That is, Christ uses the church as a means to build his kingdom in this world. He not only saves us and leaves us in the world to bear witness to his worth and to be a trophy of his grace, but also to be an instrument in his hand to rescue those who by nature are blinded by Satan. In other words, brother, his kingdom is advancing within this kingdom of darkness. And remember, that's what Jesus said. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, it's to be a militant church. He's going to use us to advance his kingdom. He's going to use us to spread the light in a dark world. That's why he leaves us here. And he does so intentionally that we would be a witness for him, a testimony to him, and an instrument used by him. So we find, first of all, that the church presently dwells in enemy territory. Secondly, the church must remain pure in doctrine and practice while in enemy territory. This is what we're to do while we're behind enemy lines. This is what we're to do while behind or within enemy territory. But another way, because we remain in enemy territory, we must guard both doctrine and practice. And thus I want to suggest quickly, there's at least two ways in which our doctrine and practice relate. You can see that here in the text. It's implied, isn't it? They allowed Balaam. They allowed the Nicolaitans whose doctrine tended toward immoral practices. And so there's necessarily a connection between our practice and our doctrine, our practice and our belief. And let me suggest... It's at least twofold. One, belief, that is what we understand, our doctrine, what we confess. Belief informs our practice. That is, beliefs or doctrines shape our understanding of what's right and wrong. Brother, how are we to know whether or not we can go to the temples? How are we to know whether or not that's right or wrong unless we know what's right and wrong? Simply put, how are we going to honor God with our practice if we don't know what God expects? And brother, that's why we have to know what the law is. And we have to know that the law is summarily found in the Ten Commandments. And it concerns our duty both with regards to God and man. And that those Ten Commandments branch out into other commandments. And that those commandments are spiritual and they concern both the heart as well as the life. Simply put, brethren, if we don't even know the Ten Commandments, we're going to be hard-pressed to know how we're to live. 
Secondly, belief motivates practice. By this, I mean our understanding of Scripture fuels or motivates our lives. Belief informs practice. Belief motivates practice. And thus, while we're waiting, while we're occupying, while we're advancing by God's grace, his kingdom, we must guard both our doctrine and practice. And that brings me finally to my third observation. The church must hold fast to Christ and not deny him while behind enemy lines. And this is how we keep our doctrine and practice pure. How is it that we keep our doctrine pure? How is it that we keep our practice pure? We hold fast, we hold tightly to Christ and the faith. In other words, the only way we can keep our doctrine and lives pure while in enemy territory is to cling tight to Christ and his faith. And then, by his grace, ere long, we'll overcome and we'll be translated from this world where Satan's throne dwells and we'll be brought into the kingdom of heaven and we'll be given some of the hidden manna and a white stone upon which is written a name no one knows except him who receives it. Amen. Well, we want to stand, brethren, and sing hymn 699 as we transition.